0: Hey y'all, welcome to episode 15 of the Plaid Pilot Podcast. 51 years ago last week, a man hijacked a Northwest Orient Airlines flight bound for Seattle from Portland. He would later jump out of the plane into the rainy night below with $200,000 in cash, never to be seen again. To this day, the incident remains the only unsolved hijacking of a commercial airline in aviation history. So today, I'll be telling the story of the infamous D.B. Cooper. I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving, uh, or at least my American counterparts. I know there are listeners in countries that either they don't celebrate Thanksgiving at all or they may have a Thanksgiving holiday but celebrate it at a different time. So regardless, I hope you had a great week. I am by myself today uh, and I imagine I'm going to be more often than not going to be by myself between now and the end of the year uh, with all the holidays and stuff like that. I know people have a lot of plans going out of town, family coming to visit and all kinds of stuff like that and just trying to line up guests and mesh schedules for recording and all that kind of stuff uh, likely be a pretty tall order. So we'll see what happens, but we'll probably have more solo shows than not going forward, uh, until the new year at least. It has been a crazy busy month for me. Uh, I haven't got to do any flying, but I'm hoping to get back up soon. Uh, My wife and I, we Went to one of the chapels down by the Strip, and uh, we renewed our vows with Elvis for our anniversary, so that was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun, uh, something she's always wanted to do, the whole Vegas-Elvis wedding thing. Um, So it was pretty cool to get to cross that off her bucket list. And of course, there was my birthday, too. I turned 30. I guess that's exciting. Um, I do want to say thank you to everyone who reached out and wished me a happy birthday. Um, I did my best to respond to everybody individually. Uh, But just in case somebody slipped through the cracks accidentally, just want to say thank you so much. I really do appreciate it, and it does mean a lot. I was fortunate to be able to take some vacation, and I actually just got back from Vermont last week. Uh, I got to do some hunting with my dad's side of the family. I'd never been able to do that before, uh, but I've always wanted to, so finally got to make that happen. Uh, My grandfather, he's going on 83, I think, and he doesn't get in the woods much anymore, uh, and my uncle, he was sick basically the whole time that I was up there. Uh, so I don't know how much that he would have actually gone if I hadn't wanted to go. Uh, but they both went anyway, and I'm super grateful that they they did that. Uh, I really enjoyed it, was glad to get to share that experience with them. So uh, my aunt and uncle, they have a, a couple hundred acres right up on the Canadian border that they let us use. And even though we didn't get anything, uh, we did see several doe, and I had a really good time was a good experience uh, and I just got home. I think it was the day before Thanksgiving by the time I got home. I think it was after midnight um, you know so the, I went to record this episode and my microphone wouldn't come on so so I took last week off as you guys probably realized uh, but that left me with kind of a predicament. So to this point, I've always based the podcast on this week in aviation history. But since I already had this episode prepared and I really like the story of D.B. Cooper, uh, I decided to go ahead and record it this week. Uh, But that kind of throws off my plans for the coming weeks. So now I'm trying to decide how to proceed. So I'm curious if you guys could shoot me a message or an email or whatever. Do you enjoy the current theme of this week in aviation history or does it really matter to you? Uh, Maybe you don't usually get to listen to the podcast as it comes out anyway and run a couple weeks behind. Um. Uh, so so it doesn't matter so much if it's this week or last week or sometime that month or not related to any time. Anyway, let me know what you think. Um, I enjoy putting the whole show together every week. Uh, but as long as I get to talk about aviation, I'm really open to suggestions on how you would like that to be structured. Whether that's sticking more to this week in aviation or just kind of branching out to whatever... I feel like talking about that day or whatever you guys want me to talk about that day. So definitely let me know how you feel about that. I would like to remind everyone uh, listening at home or in the car, or wherever you listen, uh, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you listen, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever there's a lot of different platforms. Uh, and most of them will let you, they have a button on there that you can subscribe. I think some of them will call it follow. Some call it subscribe and that actually, it does two things. First, it helps make sure that you never miss an episode uh, by sending you a notification when new episodes come out. And then, second, it helps people like you who might enjoy the show find it when they're searching for something new to listen to. Unfortunately, these days, everything on the internet is dictated by algorithms. Um, so things like hitting the follow button, leaving ratings, reviews, that kind of stuff really helps it um uh, helps tell the algorithm that it's something worth checking out. So if you do enjoy the show, please do that for me. Um, it's a lot of work, but I do enjoy putting the show together, uh, getting the show out to you every week, and I'm hoping that we can grow our numbers together. Now before we get into this week's topic, let's take a minute to hear from the Plaid Pilot Podcast, Aviatrix of the Week. Alex flies out of John Wayne Airport, and she just earned her private pilot certificate. Hey, Alex.
1: Hey, Todd. Nice to meet you.
0: Likewise, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing well as well. awesome so you uh recently passed your private pilot check ride, right? I did congratulations,
1: I did. yeah, thank you so much.
0: So how was it uh easier than you thought it would be or
1: um it was it was I thought it would be more stressful to be honest, but uh once I got there, um I knew all the questions that he was asking and i knew what i was doing so (laughs) i felt pretty confident and going in yeah Mm -hmm.
0: that's awesome so uh what what got you started with aviation is it something you've always wanted to do or uh, um
1: i was always interested in it because my grandma when she was a little bit older than me i think she was in her early 20s she got her private pilot's license Okay. Um. She, yeah. She didn't keep it up, so I never went flying with her. But she would always tell me some really cool stories, like of her flying adventures and like how she went to Mexico and landed on a beach. And I was like, "That's so cool!" (laughs)
0: Like, it is. Yeah.
1: Who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And then,
1: um, for my 18th birthday, um, a family friend of ours took me up on a Discovery flight.
0: Okay. And,
1: yeah, that's when that's when the deal
0: was sealed <laughs> yeah those those discovery flights will get you if you're not careful <laughs>
1: yeah I got the aviation bug for sure
0: <laughs> so the uh how long ago was that you started fl- flew for the first time i guess that was your first time yeah. flying a small airplane I assume
1: yeah it was that was okay. um in April of last year okay so yeah mm-hmm. and then I started my flight training in about i think it was may late May okay. of last year so mm-hmm.
0: gotcha all right. Yeah. So, what's your uh, what are your plans now for for aviation? You're just gonna hang out with the private pilot for a while. Or are you trying to make a career out of it, or?
1: Um. Yeah. I want to continue on to get my instrument, multi, and um, commercial, and eventually I want to fly private jets. And yeah, that would do be And the awesome. corporate <laughs> route. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my end goal: the private jets.
0: The, I've I've heard a lot of good things about the corporate aviation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe like eventually have my own like fleet of private jets. So who that knows? Would,
0: <laughs> that that would be that awesome, would be yeah. Cool. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what was the uh, what was the hardest part? So, from from that discovery flight until mm-hmm. you know getting passing the check ride, was was there any major roadblocks that you hit, or was everything fairly smooth sailing? How was that, how was that experience? Uh,
1: um, It was, I mean, it was overall a a great experience for me, but um, there were like a few months where there was bad weather here. So I couldn't fly. Like there was, I think there was like, yeah, quite a few months to where um, the days I had my flight lessons, there was like either Santa Ana winds or the clouds were too low. So those like were the only things really um, that prevented me like from like continuing on.
0: <laughs> just some bad weather days.
1: Just some bad weather days. And then um probably studying for the FA written too. That yeah. was <laughs> the, that was pretty difficult too. <laughs>
0: yeah. Other than other than money, uh the written the groundwork is what trips more pilots up than anything because it's yeah, just a lot of times it's not exciting. Like even even people who like it, there's just certain mm-hmm. parts of it that are you know a little bit mundane a little bit dry and it's not you know you can love flying and not love learning everything about the weather learning physics of flight and that kind of stuff so
1: yeah yeah it was hard to for me like uh with the like the internal the engine all that stuff like <laughs>
0: system knowledge and ca- that kind the of stuff
1: systems yes yeah. the systems really tripped me up on that cuz it was like for me it wasn't too interesting as, so I think that was probably it that I was interested in it. So, <laughs> so it was hard for me to like retain it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of if people that are into cars and, and stuff like that. A lot of times they, I think they go t- for the, the system stuff just comes a little bit yeah. easier because they aren't, some of the systems are, are fairly similar and the ones that aren't, they still like that machinery and that kind of thing. So, but it's not
1: exactly. really
0: flight related. So Somebody who Mm -hmm. loves flight doesn't necessarily care how a carburetor works or how the instruments work or anything like that, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, so that was definitely like a challenging part for me.
0: Well, congratulations, that's really cool, uh, getting that knocked out. And uh, have you started any instrument lessons yet?
1: I have not. I'm going to wait um, until the beginning of this coming, or this next year that's coming up already. So yeah. just waiting to get through the holidays.
0: <laughs> yeah, things are moving fast. The yeah, Where do you fly no. out of?
1: I fly out of John Wayne Airport.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm I do, uh, I've i never never flown there, but I did have to plan a flight there for my uh, private pilot check ride. So Mountain Las Vegas. Oh, okay. So that was where I had to plan oh, my, all right. yeah. my flight to. Didn't, obviously didn't make it yeah. out that far, but so. <laughs> I've seen it on the sectional. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah it's a pretty busy airport to learn out of (laughs) but i mean
0: class d right
1: um it's class c is it it's a class charlie yeah
0: i must have done that at one point
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there's a lot of commercial flights flying in and out and like some of the days it's very busy and kind of Mm. chaotic but um i was i'm like i'm thankful that i learned there because now i can just like fly anywhere basically <laughs> and not yeah. be like stressed out about the situation
0: no for sure know? and that's flying yeah. out of north las vegas it's probably not as busy as as john wayne um uh, definitely mm-hmm. not some of the surrounding areas but um still there are a lot of uh, at one point we had the most uh incursions not that that's a record that anybody wants to to hold but at one point we had the most incursions i think of any um uh, any towered airport. I guess all incursions are towered airports, but um uh-huh. you know, most incursions of in the US and it's just yeah. there's a lot of lot of training flights going on. We have some commercial operations flying out of there and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's busy, but you you know you get comfortable on the radio and you get comfortable working in different kinds of airspace and it ultimately makes you a better pilot. So
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm so grateful that I got to learn out of there. <laughs>
0: And then you have the added benefit of getting to fly in that weather. Out here, we don't have, other than winds, you know, there's not really uh-huh. anything. Just out of curiosity, do you have a uh, favorite uh, pilot from history?
1: Um, probably Amelia Earhart, just because okay. she's, yeah, she just opened so many doors for a bunch of women pilots and just mm-hmm. proved that, I mean, women and people could do whatever they want and whatever they put their minds to. So yeah. she's just very, she's just very like an inspirational role model for
0: me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, talking a little bit about your aviation career and your journey right now. And uh, definitely look forward to hearing from me as you progress through that and get the other ratings knocked out and uh, definitely stay in touch. Congratulations yeah. again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And, um, I do have socials, so um, my Instagram and my TikTok are pilot underscore girl underscore Alex. So, all right, and yeah, I'll definitely I'll put those in
0: the uh, put those in the show notes so people can go through and um, you know just be able to click on it. It'll take them right there, that kind of thing. So, I know a lot of times when ask people about their their Instagram handles and stuff like that, they try and read them out, and it's like it doesn't translate as well. (laughs) to the spoken yeah. word as it does on in, <laughs> right. in type. So but yeah the that'll be in the show notes so uh, awesome. people can find uh see what you're doing on there and and uh watch you progress through the the ratings.
1: Cool. Well thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. Now if you or someone you know have recently hit an aviation milestone and you're interested in being featured as the Plaid pilot podcast aviator or aviatrix of the week, get in touch with me. Uh, I'd love to give you a shout out or have you come on the show. You can send me an email at todd at the plaid or DM me on Instagram at theplaidpilot. Uh, I always forget to plug it, but there's also a Facebook page as well. Uh, if you're on Facebook, be sure to give that page a like. It's just the Plaid Pilot Podcast, and you can reach out there as well. And as always, even if you just want to say hi, I love hearing from listeners. Whether you're a pilot training to be a pilot, or if you just really love history or aviation. Now, on to our topic of the week. So this week, we're doing things a little different. Up to now, most of the people that we've talked about have been relatively upstanding individuals. Uh, Men and women involved in aviation who led the way. They broke down barriers for other people. Uh, And a lot of times, they laid down their lives in the furtherance of the art and science of flight. D.B. Cooper was none of that. As a matter of fact, D.B. Cooper wasn't even his real name. This whole thing occurred back in 1971, so security wasn't at all what it is today in airports, and this man, he was able to go in, purchase his ticket the day of the flight in cash, and he gave the name Dan Cooper. Apparently no form of ID was required, he just had to tell him what his name was, Uh, but I think it's safe to say he probably wouldn't have given his real name. The FBI wasn't so sure about that though. They actually started their investigation looking at individuals with similar names and one of the suspects was a man actually named D.B. Cooper. So he'd used the name Dan Cooper when he purchased his ticket and one of the suspects that they're looking at was D.B. Cooper. So while this was still a developing story, one of the reporters got in a hurry to get the story out and as reporters are wont to do, messed up the facts in a rush and he actually confused the pseudonym Dan Cooper, the name that he purchased his ticket under, with the suspect that was being investigated, D.B. Cooper, and as reporters are also wont to do, uh, the story was republished by multiple media outlets with the inaccuracies fully intact. And eventually everybody had collectively decided, rather than Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper flowed well, and we were just going to go with D.B. Cooper. And since neither one of those was his real name, I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, But for the record, Portland resident D.B. Cooper, who was being investigated by the FBI, was dropped as a suspect pretty early on. So anyway, Cooper buys his ticket for Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 and boards the Boeing 727, picking a seat in the back. I guess they didn't have assigned seats or maybe intentionally purchased a ticket in the back of the plane. I'm not sure. Um, But witnesses describe him carrying a briefcase and then a decent-sized paper bag. It was something along the lines of 12 inches by 14 inches by 4 inches, Uh, so not huge, but it could have held some jump boots or something like that, and that becomes important later. Now, at about 10 minutes to 3 in the afternoon, uh, the 727 took off from Portland International Airport, headed towards Seattle on what was supposed to be a 30-minute flight, so not a lot of time to do really anything. Uh... So I assume on climb out, he slips one of the stewardesses a note. Her name was Florence Schaffner. And the note said that he had a bomb and he wanted her to sit by him. And at first she didn't even read the note, probably thinking that he was just trying to give her his phone number, trying to take her on a date or something like that. So she just drops the note in her bag or whatever and doesn't pay any attention. So he's trying to be smooth or whatever. It doesn't work out for him. So he ends up having to tell her that he actually tells her that he has a bomb, and he wants her to read the note. So she finally does read the note, and the note said to come sit down by him, so she complies and goes and sits down by him. While she's sitting down with him, she asks to see the bomb, which I don't know that that would be my first instinct, Uh, but he opened the briefcase, and whether or not it was an actual bomb, it it looked like sticks of dynamite, some wire, and a battery-looking thing inside. So she probably wasn't a bomb expert, uh, and I'm sure she figured that he meant business, and she was more than willing to cooperate after she saw that. So Cooper told her that he wanted $200,000 cash and four parachutes, and then also he wanted a fuel truck to meet the airplane uh, when it came down to land. Now, I don't think we know exactly why he wanted the four parachutes. I think it can be assumed that that was kind of an insurance policy, by asking for the four parachutes, it gave the impression that he was going to be making some of the crew jump with him. And if he just wanted the one parachute, there would have been no incentive to pack it the right way because nobody would have cared if he if the chute opened or not. Um, but by asking for four, it made it seem like he was going to have some of the crew go with him. And that would make sure that the, the chutes were packed properly. But That's kind of just my... Take on the thing, I'm not entirely sure if that was the reason for the four or not. So you can probably imagine coming up with that much cash and four parachutes on a moment's notice in Seattle in 1971 was a tall order. So to give them time to come up with everything, the pilots flew a holding pattern over Seattle for about two hours, which in case there are any non-pilots or new pilots who aren't familiar with the procedure... Uh, A hold is basically just flying like a racetrack pattern, an elongated circle or a rectangle, more or less. And it's usually used for sequencing flights coming into an airport, since you can't really pull an airplane over to the side of the road and wait, like you can a car. But in this case, it was just used to give the folks on the ground a little bit more time to coordinate this ransom exchange. So while they're up there, they're circling for hours, they just told the passengers that the landing was delayed due to a mechanical issue. Now, I don't know what mechanical issue someone could troubleshoot for two hours in the air that, that you'd have any chance of fixing, that you wouldn't just want to get on the ground. Uh, but I guess nobody gave it any thought. Or maybe they did, and there just wasn't anything they could do about it. Anyway, around 15 till 6 in the evening, uh, so they've been up in the air for quite a while at this point, they get on the ground, They get refueled, and he required that all of the passengers stay seated until he got the money and the parachutes. He didn't want to let anybody off the airplane until he got the things that he wanted. So after he got them, uh, he let the passengers go, just like he said he would. That's one thing about this D.B. Cooper guy. Uh, I'm not condoning his actions. Obviously, there's nothing okay about hijacking an airplane and taking several dozen people hostage. Not a cool move. Not all right. But he was very polite and professional throughout the ordeal. You know, you would expect somebody hijacking a plane to be very aggressive and rude and profane, and Cooper just wasn't. Uh, while they were in the holding pattern, he actually had a conversation with one of the flight attendants, and, you know, he offered her cigarettes and stuff. So there was, it was a very, you know, polite interaction. And you, this is obviously back when you could still smoke on planes. And after they delivered the money, he was looking it over, just making sure that everything seemed like it was on the up and up real bills, the right amount, that kind of thing. And one of the flight attendants, apparently she was a big proponent of comedic relief, asked if she could have some of the money too. And he just gave her a bundle. Uh, she gave it back because she was scared that she was going to get in trouble. The company had a you know no gratuity policy. Uh, flight crew weren't allowed to take gratuities. And so she gave him the money back, but that was just the kind of guy he was, uh, or at least during this whole heist. We don't know who he was as a whole person, but during this whole heist situation... Um you know, it didn't really seem to be that much about the money. He did mention that he was doing it because he had a grudge, not against that airline. He didn't specify who or what the grudge was against. Um, but it seemed like he was more than anything just trying to make a statement. You know, it was almost like he felt bad dragging everyone into the situation. Uh it's one of the worst situations you could find yourself in on an airplane, and it didn't seem like it was something that made him happy to do. In fact, two of the flight attendants actually wanted to get off the airplane before they took off. And they just asked if they were free to go, and he said that they could do whatever they wanted. So they got off the airplane. Again, he seemed very cool and collected and kind of like it's a professional thing for him. So Cooper had a flight plan drawn up uh, to go to Mexico City. And he had pretty specific instructions for the pilots. He wanted them to fly at 10,000 feet. He wanted the flaps down, I think, to 15 degrees. And landing gear needed to be extended. And he wanted them to fly as slow as possible while maintaining level flight. And obviously without stalling the airplane. Um, he also, he wanted them to take off with the aft door and the stairs extended. So that was the thing about the 727. It had a door in the back that could lower. It made jumping from the airplane much safer than and easier than jumping from any other airliners at the time so he wanted them to go ahead and have the door down when they took off and the pilots in the home office for the airline both refused saying it wasn't safe to take off in that configuration now cooper said he knew it was doable but he didn't press the issue because again he doesn't really seem like he's trying to be confrontational not trying to cause any more trouble than obviously the huge amount of trouble he's already causing so at 7.40, after they'd been on the ground for a good while, uh, they took off again with only four crew, and Cooper were the only ones still on board. So 20 minutes later, just north of Portland, a warning indicator in the cockpit told the crew that the aft door was being opened. So about 13 minutes after that, uh, they felt the nose of the plane ac- actually pitch down, and experts think this is probably from him leaping off the extended stairs, um, down into the cold rainy night below now the 727 landed in reno aft door is still down uh still extended and this is just after 11 p.m and the man the world would come to know as db cooper was never seen again now dressed the way he was and with the shoes that he was wearing many have said it would be unlikely that he would have landed without significant you know foot or ankle or leg injuries um and then he probably wouldn't have been able to survive the cold rainy night But we don't know what was in the paper bag. He could have had a pair of jump boots, um, maybe some sort of cold weather gear, rain gear, um, maybe some survival equipment. We don't really know. Experts don't think he had an accomplice on the ground or a particular jump site in mind. Um, Something came up. He wasn't set on the route that he wanted the pilots to take. And when something came up, he agreed to a change of course. He wasn't set on one particular course Um, And he was also in the back of the airplane for a good amount of time before he actually jumped. He had no contact with the flight crew at that point. Um, So it's pretty hard to believe that he had anything more than just a rough guess of where he might be. And without knowing the wind conditions at the altitude he was at, what area he was in, uh, it would make it even more unbelievable that he could make a specified landing zone from a jump at night in the dark, you know, raining and all that kind of stuff. Now there are a few interesting things about what he knew. Uh, The first is that he knew the plane could take off safely with the aft door open. The pilots and those at the home base, they had no reason to know that it could be done safely. Uh, They were fairly sure that it couldn't. They said they didn't want to take off that way. Another thing is that the door could be opened in flight without the assistance of the flight crew and that its opening couldn't be overridden from the cockpit. Again, no civilians involved with civil operation of the 727 had any reason to know that that was possible. It wasn't something that was trained. However, during the Vietnam War, the CIA had actually used the 727 in that exact way in classified missions to drop agents and supplies and stuff like that um, into enemy territory, behind enemy lines. And at the time, no one who wasn't involved in those missions should have had this kind of knowledge. They were classified missions at the time, hadn't been unclassified, declassified, which is probably why the pilots and the other crew had no idea that it was possible. So that is a possible clue to his identity. Kind of helps us get an idea for who this person was. Another clue is the necktie he left behind. Um, It's strange that he left the tie in the first place. He collected all of the notes he'd written while on board or even the notes that he'd had written And what kind of seems like an attempt to limit the amount of evidence left on the airplane. It seemed like he was trying to clean up after himself and make it harder for them to get anything. Um, But he left his necktie for some reason and trace metals were found on the tie. Metals like unalloyed titanium, which outside of the aerospace industry was pretty rare. There are a couple other industries that you might find that metal in, but it certainly wasn't your average everyday person who's going to be running around wearing a necktie and get those types of medals on it. So this suggests that he may have worked for Boeing or another aerospace engineering company. And Boeing was in the area at the time, still is to this day, um, but certainly not, but it's a, definitely a large employer um, and isn't crazy to think that he could have been one of their employees. Another thing, his familiarity with the parachuting equipment, when he put the parachutes on, he didn't need... They brought instructions for how to use it, how to equip it, and all that kind of stuff, but he didn't need them. He already was familiar enough with the equipment that he could put it on and operate it on his own. Um, And so that kind of suggests that he may have had some military jump training. Uh, With his age, there weren't a whole lot of hobby skydivers at this point in time. Um, And You know, the skydivers that there were generally weren't in their 40s. So this kind of leads experts to believe that he probably had some level of military jump training. And then his flight plan, as well as his requests, specific requests for the configuration of the aircraft, uh, you know, with the gear down, the flaps extended, and that kind of thing, suggests that he likely had some level of aeronautical knowledge, whether he was some sort of an engineer Um, like we talked about, or maybe even just a pilot or something like that. But he, he seemed to know what he was talking about, the mechanics of flight and that kind of thing. So the FBI has looked at over a thousand suspects over the years, but no charges have ever been filed, not on a specific subject at any rate, or suspect. A lot of them have died in the decade since. Actually most, if not all of the serious suspects that had been looked at are dead now. And you can go look up some of their their stories, and there's some interesting ones for sure. Uh, but they've all been cleared as suspects. We're not going to run through the list of possibles here because, at least as far as the FBI is concerned, all the ones that you know we know about on the internet are not actual suspects anymore. Um, but a lot of them do have really cool stories, and a lot of things that make you think, say, hmm, can definitely tell why somebody would think that they were. Um, and some of these people, they waited until their deathbeds to claim to have been D.B. Cooper, which I would think those ones would be more believable um, than some that had bragged about it while they were still living and not, you know, not on death's door. Not that they wouldn't have, but it would seem odd to get away with a heist like that and then brag to other people that it was you. Very risky, to say the least. Um and the truth is he may not have even survived the jump. No body's ever been found, but that doesn't mean that he didn't die during that jump or at the very end of it, I guess. Uh in 1980 some of the ransom money, it was less than $6,000, I think like 5800 or something, uh turned up near the Columbia River. A a guy and his son, I think were digging around near the river and came across this cash. Uh, and it was still in its original bundle, still wrapped and everything. Um, and they, they actually did an analysis of the algae cells growing on the cache because it was right next to the river, damp, and all that kind of stuff. And the type of algae that was growing on the cache suggests that the money wasn't buried or submerged until months after the jump at the earliest. So the stuff that was growing on there was, I think it was like a springtime algae versus some of the Types of algae that might be in the river during the winter. So, somehow, from November until spring, the money was somewhere else. It didn't just fall there from the airplane or on his way down or anything like that. So, we don't know how it got there, but somehow it went from not in or near the river to in or near the river months later. It's one of those mysteries where the more evidence that gets uncovered, the less it seems to make sense. And because the proximity uh, to Mount St. Helens, a lot of the evidence that may have been out there is very possible that it got destroyed or at least buried for good when the volcano erupted back in May of uh, 1980. Now this incident did inspire several copycat attempts in the following years. Uh, most, if not all of them, use the 727, just like Cooper, because that aft door that came down made for an easy escape, and most, if not all, of the copycats survived their jumps, which kind of lends some additional credence to the theory that Cooper survived as well. Um, Although everyone besides Cooper was caught, so that is kind of strange. And uh, between Cooper and these copycats, they actually developed a, they called it the Cooper vein, Uh, that they put on the aircraft door to prevent it being opened in flight because they realized that this was a real problem, people hijacking the airplane and jumping out. So at this point, Cooper, who was described as being in his 40s at the time of the hijacking, and of course this is an estimate, we don't know who it was, but witnesses described him as being in his 40s, uh, he would be in his 90s if he were still alive today. So certainly not outside the realm of possibility, but definitely well past his life expectancy. And in 2016, uh, the FBI finally just closed the case. So they said they're they're done, not an active case. They're not going to actively pursue it. Um, I'm not sure if new evidence was uncovered, if they would pursue that, if somebody came across it, or if they're just done with it completely. Um, but if you're inter- interested in checking out a lot of the pictures and documents and stuff like that that are related to the case, they have made them all available to the public on their website. And I'll link to that uh, in the show notes if you want to go check out some of those pictures. I think they got a, a lot of different documents and some pictures like of the uh, some of the bills that were used. So one thing I found, uh, kind of a fun little tidbit, uh, the plane that was involved in the case would eventually go on to join the Air Force's civilian charter fleet. So eventually it got sold to the Air Force. They use it as a civilian charter plane. And it was one of the planes that actually took people back and forth from Nellis Air Force Base here in Las Vegas to Tonopah, Nevada, to work on the F-117 program when that was getting kicked off. Um, but unfortunately, the airplane was scrapped back in 1996, so does not exist anymore would have been a cool piece of history to have in a museum or something like that um, between both being the D.B. Cooper airplane and the nellis Totonopah charter plane. But oh well. Certainly is not the first airplane that would have been great to have in a museum that uh, was scrapped, and unfortunately it won't be the last. So I really like the story of D.B. Cooper. It's one of the rare ones where there's a clear bad guy Uh, But we don't necessarily hate that he got away. He was calm, collected, he was intelligent and polite, and he made sure nobody got hurt. Again, what he was doing, what he did, it was undoubtedly wrong. I don't want it to sound like I'm rooting for the guy or anything, but he was definitely not your average criminal. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show and learned something new. If you have, make sure you never miss an episode by following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you've been listening for a few weeks now, please consider rating or leaving a review. It'd really mean a lot to me to see that. Y'all stay safe this week. As my wife always says, Fluffy Landings.